Hello and welcome to Cabana Chats, a podcast about writing in community, brought to you by The Resort, where our motto is find your happy place and create. I'm your host and founder of The Resort, Catherine Lasoda. The Resort is an international community of writers based in Queens, New York City. We support writers of all genres and experience levels. If you are a writer who is looking for classes, online meetups, accountability support, and more with wonderful colleagues who love to share resources and champion one another, I'd love for you to join us online. We also have some awesome new offerings on the horizon. You can find out more about all that the resort has to offer by visiting theresortlic.com. This is the second episode of season two of Cabana Chats. And in this episode, I am so super excited to bring you a conversation with the amazing Lisa Lucas. You know, there's something really generative about reading almost anything. You know, if I read the newspaper, I may have an idea about work. Or if I read a novel, I might have an idea about work. And if I read a history book, I might have an idea about work. And, and, and those kinds of ideas don't come to you when you're just sitting there working. Lisa Lucas is Senior Vice President and Publisher of Pantheon and Shockin Books. Prior to her current position, Lisa served as the Executive Director of the National Book Foundation and as publisher of Guernica Magazine. In this conversation, Lisa and I chat about the necessity of holding on to reading for pleasure when you work in the world of books, and all that she is learning in her newest position with Pantheon and Shockin rooted in her deep commitment to books and bringing her best to her work. We also talk a bit about Lisa's previous work with the Tribeca Film Institute and some of the things she does outside of work, like her regular visits to the bookstore with writer and friend Marlon James. Let's dive on in. I'm thrilled to have with us today here on the Cabana Chats podcast, Lisa Lucas. And as I sit here in Queens, I will start us off as I always do by saying thank you, Lisa, and asking you to please introduce yourself to our audience outside the world of writing, outside the world of publishing, just to give us an idea of who Lisa Lucas is in the world. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, I guess that makes me wonder if I'm even a person outside of the world of writing and books. Am I? I don't know. Um, I guess I am a person from New Jersey um, who reads a lot, even though that is what I do for a living. It's not really how I got there. I just liked reading. Um, and I'm kind of culturally obsessive. I watch a lot of TV, movies. I listen to a lot of music. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, and that's, I think, pretty definitional. So I'm like a person who likes the culture. I like that culturally obsessive. That's probably a good situation for you to be in in your current role is to be culturally obsessive, I would say. Yeah, it um, helps. But, yeah, but you're not in New Jersey right now, right? No. So let's let's place you. Let's place you where you are right now. I'm placed on my couch in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, by a very sunny window. Lovely. Love the sun. And um, it is a sunny day here as well because I'm just one borough north of you. So the sun shines on us both right now. Well, that's fantastic. So, you know, this is a podcast about writing and community. And you talked about being culturally obsessive. Um, 
and bringing so much media into your life and reading and podcasts. And I always think about what our definition of community is, because you can think about the people around you, but you can also think about the things that they create and how they infect or affect your life, right? Um, So how has that cultural obsession changed for you over the years? Has it evolved much in the last several years about what you're reading, what you're listening to? Um, I mean, I guess on some levels, it's not as pure as it used to be, you know, pre-professionally, right? Like every movie that I watched and film that I loved and song that I played a hundred thousand times or, you know, books that I read, they were all just like for the joy, you know, just purely out of my own sense of curiosity or wanting to connect with somebody who'd recommended something to me. Um, or just like looking for a vibe, right? Like that's like the way that I came at, because I started loving all of these things, not, you know, over time incrementally. I think this was all really much, really a part of my life from jump. So I think those first years, like before like work becomes identifiable with who you are as a person, I think I spent a lot of time, you know, as a young junior fundraiser at a theater company and, Uh, When I started at Tribeca Film Institute, you know, it's like I wasn't like in a position to like make movies or really recommend movies widely beyond the scope of, you know, the teenagers that I showed movies to. So, you know, there was a real purity to it. And I was working in the children's arena. Right. So it was like I was consuming stuff that was for adults, but I was working on stuff that was for young people. So I guess I just like it was really pure and open. And and I think that's what made me into a really broad cultural consumer is that I just spent all these years like kind of un... No one needed my taste to be any particular thing. It didn't matter. And so for me, it was just sort of like, I'm curious about this thing that I don't know anything about, or I've never heard of that, or that sounds interesting, or I heard this on the radio, or I saw this on somebody's nightstand or whatever. You know, and so it was really like, I think that's part of why I'm so broad about, the, you know, it's like whether it's jazz music or country music or hip hop or, you know, or indie music or whatever crazy thing I'm listening to. Um, it never, I was never pigeonholed into liking any particular thing in any of the different areas that I like things. Right. So, yeah, that you know, that's sense. changed. And so now... You know, like I've sort of become a person, you know, who's supposed to have a certain kind of good taste. And it means something if I like diverse books or if I like, you know, agents take note if you're like talking about how much you love big histories or memoirs or, you know, everybody's looking for a way to categorize your taste, I guess. Mm. Is that a marketability Um, thing? Is that a a commerce thing then? Well, it's commerce kind of, right? Like it's like, you know, I'm in the business of, of acquiring rights to books. And agents and authors are in the business of selling those rights. And there's a lot of editors and a lot of imprints and a lot of publishing houses and a lot of indies and a lot of different ways to get a book into the world and people to do that with. And so I think that, um, you know, the communities that are selling are always looking to understand better not only who they're going to be able to sell to, but who's going to take really good care from passion of the authors that they're representing. And so I think it does really matter in a, in a non-cynical, non-obnoxious way. It, it might feel like a bummer to me, like a loss of kind of privacy in my cultural consumption, but it's actually like a very practical reason why that is. Right, right, yeah. That's interesting what you said about, you know, before the 
professionalization of our lives or like the thing that you do starts to define you more um, and then getting to this idea of categorization, I wonder how you're able to, are you still able to I don't know, listen to any kind of inner voice for yourselves about what you're drawn to? Or are you getting a lot of outside input from people about check this out, check this out, check this out? Are you able to walk into say a bookstore and just kind of run your finger along the spines and go, that looks interesting. I've never heard of that and pick it up. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you have to sort of keep your private self private and your professional self professional. Right. And so, you know, books have always been such a private space for me, such a, like a place of, you know, connection, a place of learning, a place of pace, a place of, you know, reflection and quiet time and rest. Um, and also, like, I can't, I can only publish 40 books a year. And, 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 and honestly, those books are being selected at largely, you know, at least at first glance by the editors, you know, so they're bringing things to me that are influencing my taste. So, you know, you've got to have a space where you can kind of just be like, this is the stuff I like. And, and you're not going to, you know, I might like cookbooks. We don't publish cookbooks, right? So I spend a lot of time actually reading cookbooks. I think they're often very well written and often, you know, really discounted as like a real storytelling format. Um, but it's like, I, it's not a professional interest. I have no relationship to cookbooks other than just I really like to cook and I really like to read them. And I think that yeah. they're really satisfying and nurturing and a great way to learn about other cultures, you know, um, or time periods or places. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I, I've had to sort of create like the weekend Lisa, you know, where you get to go to the bookstore and sure, you notice which of your books are face out or on the front table and you can never turn off that sort of you have a professional relationship, you know, books you were talking about earlier as like how, you know, we think of community as the people around us, but you could think about it as the ideas or the influences or the books or the media that's around us, you know, and, and at a certain point, the books in the bookstore stopped being my book friends and started being my real friends. Mm -hmm. And that's distracting, right? <laughs> you know, that it's like, right. oh, there's such and such. I haven't talked to them in a while. I should probably call him, you know, like, oh man, like, I wonder right. if I'm in the acknowledgements of that book. You know, you just kind of like get distracted by your relationship to the, the media. Um, but mostly, you know, I go with Marlon to mm -hmm. McNally a lot of Sundays um, and we just do like a little bookshop or I'll go by myself. I went this weekend and, you know, it's like, I don't know. I picked up um, a few things. I was, I'm interested in reading Timothy Snyder, Bloodlands. So I picked that up, obviously, because the world is going crazy, but also because I've just been thinking a lot about World War II and you know, what that's the origin point of and thinking about tyranny, shocking books, which I, you know, am the publisher of is like very deeply rooted in, in these stories and, and, and sure. this history. And so even beyond the situation with Ukraine, I think um, I was feeling like I needed to read more Timothy Snyder. So I picked that up and, you know, I guess somebody was telling me about some other novel that I hadn't heard of that I was excited. And then there was a book called Black Ivy, which is a, a visual book about black men and fashion, you know, um, which I thought was so interesting and beautiful, you know, so mm -hmm. I just picked up a few things. Oh, I love this. And it's also inspiring to, to hear that you are still able to have the space to go to the things that interest you outside of your professional life. And I'm sitting here wondering, is Lisa Lucas a really fast reader? Because I imagine you must have to read so much. I mean, um, yeah, I'm a 
relatively quick reader, but I, I think the thing is, no, there's not time, but you have to be a whole person to be able to do your job well. And, and so at a certain point, yeah, I should probably always be working and always be doing something for my job. You know, it just feels that relentless, but you know, you have to be able to see something outside of the work that you do. You have to be able to give yourself, you know, there's something really generative about reading almost anything. You know, if I read the newspaper, I may have an idea about work. Or if I read a novel, I might have an idea about work. And if I read a history book, I might have an idea about work. And, and, and those kinds of ideas don't come to you when you're just sitting there working, thinking right. about what you, you know, it's like, it's the, it's your brain is at repose and repose. And, and it does some of its best work when it's there. And I think totally. that's been, you know, why it is really important to me, just the way that my brain works. Um, I don't read fast enough to be like, I'm just tearing through the books. Um, but quickly enough, I suppose, to make space for it to some degree. But it feels yeah. like essential. Like the minute I stop reading books between two covers and only start reading manuscripts and proposals... 365 days a year, then like throw me off the bridge. Right. I like, love who are you too much. The, right. Like, who are you in the world then? Why are you even doing this work? And, and you know, like there's that I really appreciate that being a whole person and being in the world. It's something we talk about with writers on this podcast too, of like the parts of your writing that are not actually writing, but feed the writing, you know, mm -hmm. this whole self feeds your work as well. Um, I don't know about you, but you're mentioning all the different things you read. I was one of those kids that, I don't know, if I was in a moment and I, I was like having to sit there for a little bit, I would grab whatever had words on it, like a shampoo bottle or, or like a whatever, like a cereal box, like something to read. Does that resonate with you at all? I just like, I was always attracted. I mean, no. <laughs> uh, unclear. I, I think I, okay. I don't know that I was like reading, you know, milk cartons. Um, but I did like to read. I read a lot of inappropriate books that were in our basement. Oh. I mean, they were just like, you know, like your standard issue, Danielle Steele, Flowers in the Attic, you know, kind of yeah. just like things that looked like they had stuff I wasn't supposed to read that I would pick up and idly read when no one was home. They're always in the basement. Yeah. All of, we had <laughs> we had bookshelves. There were bookshelves all around our basement, which was unfortunate because there was a leak down there and so many books got damaged. But oh, not that's many made sad. it. But we had a lot of books in that basement. It was like kind of the graveyard for the books. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to get rid of books. I mean, I don't know. Do you have feelings about that? I guess they are oh, no. things that I'm must ruthless. move through the world. I believe oh, that people should have your books. Like, I do not need my house to be, like, collapsing under the weight of all the books. It's like, we used to do it at the foundation. At NBF, we would... Um, we would, like, every single year at the end of the year, all those books on the shelf, we would take home what we wanted to take home. If there's anything left over that people wanted. And then we would donate all those books. The hardcovers went to Housing Work. The paper, paperbacks went to Rikers. You know, we just, like, got rid of all the books. And I think we did those in our offices. We did that out in the main area where all the NBA submissions were. And I kind of do the same thing. My old neighbor, I, read, I met up with my old neighbor, I just moved this year just down the block, but I met up with my old neighbor and he was laughing about how much he missed the sort of like book giveaway. Cause I always <laughs> had so many books that I would put them on the stoop, like every two, you know, two months or so there'd be like a big old book drop, but everybody would take all the books. 
And now yeah. I'm not living your there ne- anymore. Your neighbor so. needs to visit your your new place and just mm-hmm. make visits. <laughs> You're like, these are the dates they're going out. Come on by. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's definitely some good knowledge to take in. Having lived in New York 25 years myself and moved several times, and every time it felt like there were more, more books coming with me. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> it's insane. I mean, it's just like, I got rid of so many books before I moved, and it's already like, I, I can't even, I don't know how many boxes of books there were. And they're all sort of spread out sneakily, so it doesn't look like the house is like overloaded with books, but there are a lot of books in here, for sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know about you, but it brings me a little bit of comfort to think like if I were trapped in my house, like when is that going to happen? I don't know. When are we going to be trapped in our homes? <laughs> Hello. There's a lot here to keep me entertained. Um, yeah. And none I of us read say- all the books that we thought we were going to read when we were <gasps> locked in the house for two years. You're like, I'm going to read everything. I have a library. This is what it's for. And then you get locked in for two years and you're like, I don't know. I didn't read as much as I meant to. But I did see Love is Blind. <laughs> we learned so much about ourselves in this time. Um, well, so books, and you mentioned National Book Foundation, and now mm-hmm. you're with Pantheon and Shock, and, and uh, prior to NBF uh, with, with Guernica. And so you were this voracious consumer of culture, and your life migrated to books and to publishing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've been asked this before, but could you just speak briefly about why you think it went that direction or what drew you to working with books and with writers? I think I always liked books best of all. You know, I think my core emotional relationship, you know, the thing I need to be in a, you know, the the need to be in a bookstore looking around and reading book reviews and, you know, just being truly obsessive never really existed for anything but books. Um, And I would track that back to sort of like, I always was a reader. I was like a big reader as a kid and I liked talking about books in high school. And, but, you know, but when it really became like, (gasps) there's so much to learn and I love this was really right after I graduated from college, you know, and that was Mm. the the independent, the extra, you know, the extracurricular focus kicked in because it was the first time books weren't a huge part of my, you know, sort of day to day life as a student. Right. So I just leaned in even harder and I just loved them. I just, I don't know. It was like, but it's always been more than just an author or a story. It's also been the books themselves, the physical you know, I, I loved blurbs and acknowledgments and deckled edges and French flaps and the way that different paper and different typesets. And, you know, I've just always been fascinated by the whole thing. It's always been as much. The package was always as interesting to me as the book. Yeah. You know, so and I the think smell. I, and the smell. Everybody loves the smell. It's true. The smell of the paper smell is so good. But, you know, I am. Um, I guess I just always was a reader. You know, I'd be working at a theater company and reading, you know, outside of the building because I had a 15-minute break or in between meetings or something. And I'd be recommending books to every coworker I've ever had. And, you know, it's funny, the stories that you hear from people who knew you before you worked in books. And they're like, I remember when you recommended this book. And, you know, apparently I worked at The Source magazine briefly. And when you said apparently you did, do you not remember this? Well, no, I mean, it was such a short blip. Okay. You know, but yes, I did. I worked at the source for like eight months in 2002 or something. And um, it's funny because when I got the job, you know, at some point somebody reached out and was like, we all read Bob Caro because you recommended it to us. And so I love that. Like, I love that I was just like some little nerd running around the source office at 22 years old being like, you got to read Bob Caro. 
Uh, you met him, right? Or you have a... Yeah, totally. Right? Bob's great. Um, yeah. He was the winner of the Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in 2016. And then he did a video for us for the National Book Foundation in 2017. And then, you know, I'm a huge fan of Bob's work. And I think that he was really interested and 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 moved by the spirit of inclusion at the National Book Foundation. And um, so, you know, he's become kind of like a, a you know... I guess I'm just like his super fan. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I love friend. that. No, he's totally I my friend, that. but I'm also his super fan. Right, right. But so you but you were like pushing out his work and you were a fan of his work before you were able to work with him professionally like oh, that. That's amazing. I mean, by 18 years. Yeah. It's 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 wonderful to see. I I would love to ask you about so you you're working in publishing as a publisher what you see as the role of um of, of publishers in the development of community and the idea of community in the world of books. As we talk a lot with writers here about how do you build your community of writers, but what are you doing as a publisher? What do you think is important um, in what comes from that, I guess, side of, of developing community? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I just assume that everybody is is like gung ho about community as I am, and like let's do it. So I, that's the question I ask. It's surprising how people aren't community minded, right? Like a mm. lot of people live their lives inside of you know their little bubbles, and that's like perfectly fine, you know. And I guess. I just feel like I've always had the appetite for scale and there's mm. no way to have scale without community. I mean, well, there's two ways to get scale and, you know, one is sort of like cynical and one is, you know, sort of an embrace, you know, in a shared sense of collective growth. And, um, I think I've always been interested in that second one. Um, and it really comes from theater. Honestly, mm. you know, I worked at a theater company and it was highly collaborative and theater is such a collaborative medium. But there was, um, you know, I guess I, I don't think about community as much as I think about just access because you can't have a community until you have access. And so, yeah. you know, one of the things that was moving about my time, I was at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, right as a, you know, just out of college um, graduate. And, you know, what was lovely is they had a burgeoning educational program. And it was all just volunteer driven and it was really small at the time. But I thought it was so moving because you you go into this theater every night and it was like the same people, you know, we were, I was in charge of the telephone. So we were calling the same donors, you know, and it all felt just so insular, except for when you went to those student theatrical programs, mm. when it felt like everyone was invited. It felt like Chicago. <sighs> And, you know, and if you could see young people having their first experiences with a theater production and really falling in love, like I did as a little girl, you know, it's like the first time I went to a play, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And, you know, and from that comes community that, you know, you, we have to you have to fall in love with the with a piece of theater to become a part of a collective of people who love theater. Right. It's the entry point. And so whether I was at, you know, Steppenwolf being really interested in the theater 
education work. And then I went on to another theater and did theater education work. And then to Tribeca, where I did film education, K through 12. You know, it always seemed to me like at that until then, it was like, okay, well, a thing that I like to do is to go into sort of cultural institutions and to help them improve access and diversity by making sure that young people are able to develop community around the things that we have already been lucky enough to come to love. And, you know, books, when I went into books, I had, you know, sort of like a, a couple of years to sort of, you know, be in grad school for books, right? I got to work at Guernica. I was a volunteer on the front end of that. And, you know, you really got to look around and see, okay, how does this community work? How do the nonprofits work? Who are the, you know, learning? I probably couldn't have said big five publishing before that year. You know, I wouldn't have thought about it that way. Um, and so, you know, you really get to look at everything. And, and I think what was interesting is that there was one community that was very inclusive, the nonprofit, you know, sort of world that I was living in where I was meeting all of these authors of color and meeting all of these queer authors and just meeting like all kinds of different authors that were all sort of a, you know, a relatively early stage in their career. And then you would sort of, I grew into it and I, you know, went to a few things that were more, you know, that were larger or fancier and, you know, got to meet more of the publishers and, and you saw a real disconnect between who was in those rooms and who was in the sort of indie scene rooms, which is also not above critique. You know, right. all literary communities, when I started, had some issues, every single one. Right. You know, there was nobody who got an A plus or a gold star, but it was a real market difference. Um, and, you know, I think that, at that time, there was a community around me of people who were really upset about lack of diversity inside of these houses, whether it was at a magazine, a literary magazine, or if it was a, an independent publisher, or it was a corporate publisher. It just didn't feel like we were represented well, you know, both as authors and as administrators. And, you know, those conversations in maybe 2012, 2013, you know, which is 10 years ago now. Yeah, I can't believe that. We were in a really different place, right? Like, it's like there was no 2020. There was no reckoning. There was no, you know, you know, collectives of young people and publishing rising up. There was no holding power to account, really. And, um, but there was a group of us who really shared a lot of the same interests and shared the same concerns. And, you know, I think in books, it reminded you that community is also strength. You know, it gives you, as an activist, yes. it gives you strength. As a person with a, with a complaint to lodge, it gives you strength. And, 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 you know, part of the lack of knowledge of the lack of diversity of publishing also comes from the fact that there's a huge community that we wanted to talk to that weren't being spoken to. And so community becomes all the more important, which then wraps back into the NBF work, which is like you have to start having positive, repeated experiences with a piece of text that is full length at a very young age to grow up into a reader. You need to constantly, you know, find and refine value in the book. And that's why we did that huge project where we gave books, you know, to young people all throughout the public housing authorities in, in the U.S., yeah. And worked with the Urban Libraries Council and, and tried to get library cards because we were trying to create systems inside of spaces that allowed for holistic access to good quality books, both as books you have in the home, 
both also books that you can constantly interact with because of your library relationship. So community big shout goes out to libraries. Sorry, big shout just out. side Always. note, big shout out forever. They're holding it down, but it's you know. But I think the idea of community is so. There's so many different types, and there's so many different ways that we need them. But at, but at foundation, you just need a lot of people who have access to a thing that fall in love with it and that are able to share with one another because that's contagious, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Thank you for this, like breaking it down, kind of this idea of creating systems to to you know, within these structures and, and how do you work with, you know, making change. I love what you said earlier about community, not the idea of community necessarily, but the idea of embrace. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful way to think about it and access. And I wonder um, if you could speak just a little bit about how you're bringing that approach to what you're doing now in your current role and how you're thinking in terms of embrace and how you approach your work. I'm trying to figure that out still. You know, it's like I've just hit the one-year mark, just over the one-year mark. And so... Congrats. Thank you. And I think the first year was just getting my sea legs, right? It was an awful lot to learn. And I think that I'm always nervous about saying, like, I'm learning what I'm doing because you don't want people not to trust you. I mean, so there's one hand, you're like, I've done this. I've done jobs. I've supported the arts. I have produced events and things for 20 years. Right. And so on some level, you are really prepared, actually, to do a job like this. But there's also a lot of language and custom and, you know, just specific ways that things work that you have to really wrap your arms around to be able to be effective. And so I think that, you know, it's like I didn't want to lose any time and I certainly didn't want to screw anybody's publication up. And so, you know, you really have to commit yourself full force to sort of just learning. Like, I feel like I would go to sleep some nights over the past year and just be like, my brain literally throbs because I just like snarfled so much information that it's like I need a minute to just like chill, you know? Um, But I think that this year's work is really, and and of course I was thinking about access and embrace and, and, you know, how you make people feel included in literature from day one. And I think that, you know, it is harder to know exactly how to do that on the selling side because my first acquisitions, the ones that I sort of am saying, okay, this looks at a big audience and this is something that I think everybody should read. Those books start publishing later this year. So I haven't been through the full life cycle of one of the books that have been acquired on my watch yet, right? I'm only halfway through, you know? So I'm not there yet. And um, I think it's really hard to know how you position a book how you sell a book, how you market a book, how you publicize a book, and how you get really creative with it. Um, When you're thinking about offering an invitation and saying, you know what, this might be dense and heady, but it's for you. It's for you and you and you and you and you and you and you, you know? Right. Um, And so it's easy to talk about those in broad strokes, but it's really hard to granularly talk about it because I'm not building that yet in some ways. But what I think I have done is built a team of people who are all really, really open-hearted and open-minded and really interested in scale and not scale in a money way. That comes too, right? If you have a bestseller, you make bestseller money, right? Hopefully. But I think they are really, you know, invested in the reader. You know, it's like if I'm going to be working on books, I want to be thinking about the reader a lot. And I think that they all think about the reader quite a lot. And that's meaningful to me. 
And I think that that's the, just thinking about the end user of anything. You know what I mean? Yes. Like just thinking yes. for one second that there's a human being on the other side of whatever transaction you're seeking, whatever art you've created, that this is a conversation. And if you can start from a place of knowing that you are in dialogue, then I think that that gets you half the way there. Here, here. Yeah, that's how we're going to keep this world going, I think. <laughs> Remembering that there are people out there. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole thing. Seriously. It's, people. it's like thinking about Ukraine has been so successful. And in sort of, you know, Zelensky, man, is a brilliant communicator. But, you know, because he didn't sit there and say, you know, it's like, sure, he's been like, we're fighting, we're here, you know, but also he said, we are Ukrainian. These are, we're going to be ourselves. I'm going to show up in a T-shirt because it's a war and I'm keeping it real for you. And, you know, and he's talking directly to the people of Ukraine and you can feel it when he's doing so. And I think that that, you know, has allowed the world to actually treat victims of war as human beings for the first time in a very long time. And I think that there's some of that is racism and that we're seeing yeah. a country that's white, although we didn't say anything in 2014, you know, um, really collectively. So maybe it's not that we're, that it's white folks and it's just the people have been through a lot. I don't know what it is, but you know, I do think that he was able to force us to look at Ukrainians as human beings living their lives in a way that, right. you know, and so, yeah, I think whenever you, whether it's a war or it's a reader or it's a viewer of a film or it's a museum goer, you know, or a person purchasing clothes that might be, you know, a size 16, like, it's like, think about real bodies, think about real minds, think about real hearts, think about real lives, think about, you know, nutritional needs of people, of yourself, think of, you know, sort of all of these things. Right. No, this is such a great thing to hear. And also, side note, that it's wild how, that you can just go to anything war, honestly, like, and connect it to what is ideal marketing for something. Like, it's like just communication. It's just all communicating with each other as people. It's like, it's really baseline, right? So I appreciate that you're bringing in this idea of embodiment and like we are humans in bodies and how do you live in the world, especially when many of us have been interacting for two years via screens. Mm. It's it's very hard to like I'm so super dead inside. <laughs> well, <laughs> listen, is with you saying that, I want to I want to wrap up with one question that's going to bring it hopefully to like a, a revivification of Lisa <laughs> Lucas. And just speaking of the idea of embrace and and connection and, you know, what you're so busy doing with your work and still learning and doing because you care so much about doing a good job, I think, and you like recognize and like it's it's clear that you deeply care and want to do a good job. Um, what are you doing for yourself to bring embrace around you, to bring support around yourself? Ooh, um, that's a great question. I'm gonna work on that, and the next time when I figure it out, you can have me back on the podcast. Okay, I will, but I, I just want to just to remind you, you did mention you go to the bookstore on Sundays. That's true. I do. I do. I got a massage recently. Okay. These are all, these all count. Mm-hmm. I did that. You know, I cook a lot. I do cook a lot. And okay. I find cooking very relaxing. Um, I've been uh, having lots of adventures in Jackson Heights, purchasing all of the ingredients <gasps> I need to make extravagant Indian meals. Jackson Heights, Queens is the best. 
It's so Ever good. for food. So good. Oh my goodness. Patel it's Brothers, man, for the win. Oof. For the win. Patel Brothers. Uh, Such shout a great out. They are, not, they are not a sponsor, but I don't care. They are forever and ever. I love Patel Brothers and Jackson Heights. I spent $75 and came home with like a, like a, like a, like a, a crate of deliciousness. It was like the best. Riches. Riches. I was a, a rich Food woman riches. In, in mostly rice, but yes, and beans. <laughs> you will never go hungry. No. Lisa, um, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. It's been really wonderful chatting with A you. A complete pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that, dear friends, brings us to the end of this episode of Cabana Chats. I want to thank Lisa Lucas for being our guest today. And I encourage everyone to check out the amazing things that are happening at Pantheon and Shockin'. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to Cabana Chats and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It helps more people find the cabana. Our podcast editor is Jade Isiri Ramos, and our resort assistant is Nadine Santoro. Our music is by Pat Irwin. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota, and I'll see you next time in the cabana.